Welcome to another of the First Minister's Ask Me Anything press briefings. This one was broadcast on the 6th of February. Morning, everyone. Uh, thanks very much for coming along uh, here again this morning. As you know, these sessions are principally for all of you to ask me whatever questions you want to ask of me. But just before uh, we turn to that, uh, let me make some very brief introductory remarks. Uh, first of all, my thoughts, like those I'm sure of everyone this morning, are with people in Turkey and Syria following the devastating earthquake earlier today. In due course, the Scottish Government uh, will consider what assistance we might be able to offer as part of what I am sure uh, will be an international relief effort. Uh, secondly, when I stood here uh, two weeks ago, I think some of you asked me then if and when I would publish my tax returns. So just to draw attention to the fact, and I'm sure you've seen this already, that this and previous year's returns have been published online this morning. Uh, they confirm that my only income is my MSP First Minister salary. Um, while I pay tax on my full salary, um, I receive only the 2008-9 value of my salary in line with other ministers and the pay freeze that we agreed uh, back then. And finally, uh, let me take the opportunity to congratulate Gregor Townsend and the Scottish rugby team on a quite magnificent Calcutta Cup win on Saturday. Uh, with those very brief introductory comments. I'll now move straight to questions. I'm going to follow the same format as last time. I've just run through every journalist that has indicated an intention to ask a question. And I'll start, first of all, with Gordon Cree from STV. Thank you. Your government has been sent a letter by around 100 alcohol producers urging you don't destroy Scotland's drinks industry, a reference to the consultation on alcohol advertising. What level of economic damage to that industry do you think is an acceptable price to pay for intentions to improve public health? Um, this is not about doing economic damage to the alcohol industry. It is about making sure we're taking responsible steps to protect public health. I'm aware of the letter uh, that has been sent. The consultation, of course, is ongoing and the Public Health Minister will uh, meet with a range of stakeholders over the course of the consultation and obviously we'll consider all points that are made in the course of the consultation when it closes and the responses are analysed. I mean, we had many of these uh, same debates and discussions during the uh, passing of the minimum price for alcohol legislation and in the uh, court challenges that uh, came after that. And this is about a balance. Nobody, this is unlike the situation with tobacco and cigarettes, for example. Uh, nobody in government is telling people not to drink alcohol at all. This is about responsible uh, consumption of alcohol. And there is evidence uh, globally, uh, as well as uh, here at home, that advertising that glamorises uh, alcohol can lead to overconsumption of alcohol. So these are things that we need to consider carefully uh, and we will consider them carefully uh, as the consultation finishes and is analysed. Just to pick up on those comments, you said there were around minimum pricing. Your former ministerial colleague and MSP, Fergus Ewing, has said the bottle deposit scheme, which will also affect this industry, will decimate the drink sector 
and is the worst regulation he's seen for 43 years. Is he wrong? Um, I don't agree with those comments. I've not seen the uh, particular uh, comments that Fergus has made. I know he has uh, been vocal on this issue before. Uh, The deposit return scheme is, of course, an environmental uh, initiative. It is about uh, promoting a circular economy, reducing waste, and it is something uh, that is important in that regard. Many other countries already have similar schemes in place. Uh, we've taken time to introduce this. In fact, uh, there has been some criticism levelled at government in the past over uh, what would be described as delays, as we have taken the time to listen to uh, the, the views of industry. And just in recent months, there have been uh, amendments made uh, to how we intended to proceed with that to take account of some of the views uh, that industry have put forward. And we'll continue to uh, have that liaison and engage and respond as, as far as possible. But this is an important step forward in trying to reduce waste, which is something I think all countries have a, a very serious responsibility to do right now. The, the final point I would make, which I think is one that is incumbent on all governments as we regulate for very good and understandable reasons. We've talked here uh, already uh, this morning about regulation that is uh, potentially about reducing harm from alcohol and in uh, the sense of the deposit return scheme, regulation that is about um, trying to reduce waste. But as we regulate, it is really important that we consider the overall impact on business and industry and engage with industry. I uh, spoke at the Business and Parliament conference uh, down in Holyrood on Friday morning, and that was one of the points that was being made by some of the businesses there. Uh, There needs to be as close as possible, as early as possible, consultation and engagement when we're contemplating changes of this so that any reasonable points that are made by industry to, to reduce any unnecessary impact are taken account of. Glenn Campbell. First Minister, is your gender recognition reform bill dead now or do you still intend to go to court to challenge the Section 35 order? And when it comes to those within your party who've criticised your approach to this, have they got a point do you now accept or should they be considering whether they stand again for the SNP at the next election or stand down? Let me take those points in turn. My position in terms of uh, challenging the use of a Section 35 order hasn't changed. I think when I stood here two weeks ago, I uh, articulated uh, my view that it is important to do that, firstly, in terms of the particular uh, and specific subject matter, but secondly, uh, because I think there is a need to have greater clarity around uh, the circumstances in which it is appropriate for uh, the UK government to use a Section 35 order. So my position on that hasn't changed. In terms of uh, the bill, Parliament as a whole, by a two-thirds majority, um, with MSPs of all parties within that two-thirds majority, uh, passed that bill before Christmas. I think it was right to do so. Um, In doing so, it followed on from many other countries who have legislation of that nature already in place. In fact, since we did that, at least one other country uh, that I'm aware of, Finland last week, has also passed uh, similar legislation um, and obviously we have the 30 section 35 uh, issue to, to work our way through uh, much of the coverage in the last couple of weeks has understandably focused on an individual case um, and a very serious individual case of somebody convicted of rape and I think when cases like that arise it is important that they are dealt with uh, seriously and appropriately as has been uh, the situation in this case but there's no other group in society uh, where 
where the actions of an individual or a small minority uh, would be used to take away or undermine rights of the whole group in society. And I don't believe that should be the case uh, for the trans community. Uh, the vast majority of whom, overwhelming majority of whom, like the population generally, never commit any uh, offences or, or crimes of any description. In terms of your final point, um, uh, I think you asked the question you asked me was, do I think people should be standing down from the SNP? No, I don't. Um, you know, like any party, probably anywhere in the democratic world, there is a, a general expectation that no matter our personal views, we broadly accept the platform on which we stand, if we stand for a party. But equally, in probably every party uh, that is a, a, a democracy and every democracy in the world, there are individuals who uh, can't accept uh, the position on particular issues and vote accordingly. That is uh, internal party democracy, and I think uh, it may be rare in the SNP, it is rare in the SNP, but nevertheless, um, I think we should uh, see it in that way. Uh, James Cook. First Minister, I wonder if I could ask you more broadly about the ideology here in terms of gender, because I'm genuinely struggling to understand the ideology. So you have argued for some years in favour of self-identification, as enshrined in, in, in the legislation that, that went through Parliament, the idea that if you want to change your gender, all you need to do is declare that you're changing your gender. But you've also suggested that you don't accept Isla Bryson's position in changing gender, that you effectively think Isla Bryson is at it. So my question is, how do you square those two things? Because what is the barrier and who decides? Is it a rape conviction? Is it a sexual assault conviction? Is it a, is it a theft conviction? Is it up to the First Minister to decide individually whether you believe one individual or another? I don't understand the ideology, and I wonder if you can explain it to us. Well, first of all, James, for me, it's not about ideology. Um, it's about the rights of a minority in our society who already struggle with stigma and discrimination. And in terms of the process that's currently in place for somebody legally changing their gender, many who go through that process find it degrading um, and traumatic and overly bureaucratic. So it's not an ideology. It is about rights. And I think that is the important starting point. Uh, secondly, yes, the legislation uh, is described as self-ID, but it is not true to say, and you can look at the legislation, that all you need to do is declare. There is a statutory process in place um, and the uh, rules uh, and procedures of that are laid down in the legislation that was scrutinised uh, rigorously by Parliament and passed by a two-thirds majority. The point I, and I made this point to Glenn as well, is that within any group in society, uh, there will be individuals, and I'm not commenting on a particular case here. In fact, what I said in Parliament first and foremost is that I don't know enough about individual cases to make the kind of judgments that you're, you're speaking about. I was reflecting on uh, what I think many people might think in that particular case. But in any group in society, there will be individuals who choose, who, who do wrong, who commit crimes, who abuse the rights that that entire group uh, enjoy. Now, my point is that that will be the case in every group in society, but there is no other group in society where we accept that the actions of 
an individual or a very small minority of individuals somehow forms a justification for taking away rights from the whole group or, or not according rights to that whole group that make their life easier and less traumatic. Uh, these are complexities that will arise in every walk of life and I believe in a mature democracy uh, like Scotland is, we are perfectly capable of navigating our way uh, through these issues and the important principle, uh, I wouldn't use the word ideology, but the important principle here is that where in any group an individual commits an offence or behaves inappropriately or wrongly, you deal with that individual. And in this case, the individual is is a rapist. Uh, that's the important description for this individual. They have been convicted of rape and they are in prison and in a male prison. So you deal with the individual. Uh, you don't further stigmatise the entire group. I totally understand that. But do you understand wh why some people are struggling with it? That, that, that basically, the core of this matter is, is Isla Bryson a woman or not? And if Isla Bryson's not a woman, who makes that decision and on what basis? <laughs> The, the, the important question here for me, and I, I said this in Parliament, is actually not that one. It is the crime that the individual has been convicted of. So, no, sure, but, but I'm watching to this, watching is, this, and concerned about the impact of self-identification. Well, it is what flows from that. So, in a prison context, even if you. If you take the view, and I'm just uh, trying to sort of go along with your your questioning here, if you take the view that an individual of this uh, description is a woman in a prison context, that does not give that individual the right automatically to be accommodated in a female prison. If that was the case, then yes, I accept that would be uh, the most important question, but that's not the case. So this individual is in a male prison uh, because of the nature of the crime and uh, presumably the nature of the risk that perhaps is, is presented by that. Similarly, when that individual leaves prison, although uh, I would suspect uh, that may be some time, uh, that there will be arrangements in place to monitor uh, that individual as there are arrangements in place to monitor sex offenders uh, when they leave prison. So the important fact in this case is the crime that was committed and the individual, uh, regardless of, of gender, should be treated in a way appropriate to the crime that was committed and the nature of any risk that that individual is considered to pose. That's the important thing. And yes, I, I do understand uh, that people perhaps uh, struggle with some of this, but that's why it is all the more important, in my view, that we deal rationally with these uh, situations where we deal with, in a prison context, the nature of the crime and the degree of risk posed, as has happened in this case, and that when we're dealing with individuals who do wrong, we focus on the individual. We don't stigmatise or remove rights from the entirety of a group, the overwhelming majority of whom, in the case of the trans community, as with the general population, never commit any crime. They simply want to live their lives with dignity and free of the trauma that often is associated with how they choose to live their lives. Alan Smith from Burr. Thank you, First Minister. It's the last day of rolling strike action by EIS members across Scotland and teachers say they've heard nothing new from the Scottish Government now for months. The Education Secretary again said that there remains some distance between all the parties involved, said there needs to be compromise from, from everyone involved. But where is the compromise on the side of the employers? And is there anything new you could say to teachers today to help avert further strike action? 
I hope we can reach a, a settlement here and there is certainly a, a very strong willingness, in fact, a very strong desire on the part of the Scottish Government to see that settlement. Nobody, uh, certainly nobody in government, nobody in local authorities, and absolutely, I am of no doubt here, no teacher will want to see further disruption to the education of young people. But we have to reach agreements that are affordable. That's just a, an inescapable you know, statement of reality from uh, the, the point of view of, of government and local authority employers. And fair, fair to other public sector workforces, um, including the broader local government public sector workforce that has already um, accepted a pay increase that is the same as that offered to teachers. So there needs to be some further discussion uh, to see where uh, the, the grounds for settlement uh, will be. That will involve undoubtedly compromise on the part of employers, but it will also need compromise on the part of the teaching unions. And I think with that uh, spirit and that approach, we should be able to, to reach an agreement. The final point I would make, which is a point you will have heard me make before, is that and this is in contrast to what we are seeing, including this week, in terms of NHS workforces in uh, England. We are not a government that is choosing to simply dig our heels in on public sector pay disputes. We want uh, to avoid disputes. We certainly want to avoid where we can industrial action. And we want to ensure uh, the best possible pay increases for public sector workers who are struggling, like everybody is struggling right now, uh, with the, the elevated level of inflation. So we are genuine and sincere about seeking that agreement, but it has to be agreement based on a settlement that is affordable and fair. And that's what we're still seeking to achieve uh, with the teaching unions. And I hope very much we'll be able to get there in the period ahead. I'm not going to... You've, you've seen we're still in talks with uh, NHS unions. We've avoided any industrial action so far in the NHS with, uh, yeah, I think, a fair offer this year. We're also uh, in negotiations about the, the pay settlement for next year. So we will look for the areas of compromise to maximise what we can do for teachers. I, I would, you know, and I'm not saying that this should... Uh, satisfy teachers right now, but if you look across the last few years and the the, the uplift in teacher salaries uh, over the last few years, I think that also evidences the fact that we value the teaching workforce and want to reward them as much as we possibly can. But we have to do that within the the constraints of affordability and also fairness. You know, the the offer that is currently on the table to teachers, uh, albeit teachers tend to be paid more than other parts of the some other parts of the local government workforce but the percentage uplift on offer to teachers right now is the same as that that janitors or or dinner ladies have already accepted um, in our schools so there is a an issue of fairness here as well as affordability but we continue to uh, seek where the grounds for compromise and agreement may come Gina Davidson Thanks very much, uh, First Minister. Um, sorry, just going back to what James was asking you, you said if um, Isla Bryson or this individual was a woman, there wouldn't be an automatic right to be in a woman's prison, but surely there would be an automatic right to be in a woman's prison if um, they were female. Um, and can I ask, do you think the problem really here is that the Scottish prisons policy is not the law. They've gone ahead of the law, the law as you would like it to be under under your GRR bill, and they're breaching the Equality Act by not providing a single-sex space for female prisoners. Uh, no, I, I don't think the 
Scottish Prison Services breaching the Equality Act. And, and what I would say, of course, is that the arrangements that are in place uh, or have been in place and were in place when Isla Bryson uh, was convicted of rape are the same procedures that the Scottish Prison Service have had in place since, I think, 2014. So they are not new. They haven't been, uh, hadn't been amended and uh, hadn't been impacted by the Gender Recognition Reform Bill. In fact, even if that bill had been enforced, they wouldn't, it wouldn't have had the impact uh, that some have uh, speculated on those procedures. Also, and final point I would make here is that uh, I'm sure they're not identical and I don't uh, claim to be an expert on other countries' uh, procedures for determining uh, which prisons transgender prisoners go to. But my understanding is that the procedures followed by the Scottish Prison Service uh, are not materially different to the situation that has been in place in England uh, or other parts of the UK. Katrine Bussey. Thanks, First Minister. I wanted to return to the issue of teacher strikes. Obviously, the EIS, uh, the, the latest phase of their action has finished today. But Andrea Bradley this morning has said that they have a mandate that runs until May. The union has strike dates planned for March and April. They have a mandate that runs till the middle of May. She's raised the prospect of renewing that mandate and said that there is a risk of exams being disrupted by strike action. How concerned are you that after years where children's exams were disrupted by COVID, that they now risk those exams being disrupted by strike action? And will your government step up actions to to try and resolve this dispute? Um, That would concern me, obviously. I don't want to see children's education uh, disrupted. Uh, That would be the case at any time, but it is particularly the case after the unavoidable disruption uh, that we've had in the last few years because of COVID. Um, I'm not going to repeat everything I said to Alan earlier on. We do want to reach a settlement here um, and we will strive to find uh, the common ground uh, that a settlement might be struck on, but that is going to take compromise, obviously. That will involve compromise on the part of employers, uh, but it will also involve compromise on the part uh, of unions. And I think if we have that spirit uh, and an acceptance, which I think is evidenced across other public sector workforces, that the government wants to maximise the pay increases we can give to workers right now. Um, and if we can have uh, continued discussions on that basis, then I very much hope that we will be able to see an agreement that avoids uh, the kind of disruption that you have talked about. Alistair Grant. Yeah, hi, thanks very much. Just on that exact same issue, actually, um, I think Shirley Ann Somerville yesterday said that contingency plans are being put in place just in case uh, there are strikes or industrial action during the exam period. Could you maybe explain a little bit what those plans are and could you say to parents and pupils today that are worried about this that there will not be their exams will not be disrupted by any industrial action that does go ahead? Thanks. Um, look, government's put in place and obviously local authorities are the employers over teachers uh, and are obviously the the part of government that is responsible for delivering school education contingency plans are put in place for a whole range of possible scenarios most of which we hope never come to pass and that is the case, I'm not going to get into the the details of that right now, if it is necessary those uh, contingency arrangements will be set out in full but I very much hope that they are not uh, necessary and what I would say to to parents um, and to young people and and to teachers is that we will do everything in our power to avoid uh, any such need for contingency plans of that nature. And I hope we will see the spirit of compromise that is necessary to reach a resolution to this dispute and that that happens uh, very soon. 
Paul Hutchin. First Minister, I've seen a COSLA document which uh, argues that if councils are not allowed to cut teacher numbers, then there may be massive rises in council tax. Could you just comment on that? And just on the tax return issue, I think that you have called for Rishi Sunak to follow suit. Do you also think that the leaders of the Holyrood party should publish their tax returns over the same time period? Um, on the first question, you know, councils like the Scottish Government uh, are operating in a really tough financial uh, context at the moment. So there are tough choices uh, for councils uh, to make. There are tough choices for the Scottish Government uh, that we are making in the context of our draft budget for next year. Um, I don't think it is acceptable uh, to see a, a reduction in teacher numbers given the commitment of the Scottish Government uh, to maintain and increase teacher numbers over this Parliament uh, to support our uh, aim of improving attainment and closing the attainment gap. Um, and, you know, I don't, I, I'm not sure if it's the same cause that document that was being referred to last week, so I, I don't know whether I, I, I have seen uh, or even seen extracts of the cause of document you're talking about, but, you know, councils have to make uh, balanced judgments. They are, uh, as things stand right now with the draft budget, uh, receiving in next year's budget an increase of over half a billion pounds. Um, and therefore, yes, there are difficult judgments, but I think uh, there is an increase there that allows councils to, to make balanced judgments that deliver on a range of priorities. I think uh, the only other point I would make here is at this time of year, we often hear uh, predictions about the decisions that councils will take as they set their budgets. I, if I cast my mind back to previous years, you know, we've heard pretty dire predictions ahead of budgets being set for job losses and council tax increases, uh, by and large they have not come to pass. Um, so I think we need to uh, allow councils to set their budgets and uh, we can see where uh, that takes us once we, we have that full picture. Um, on the tax return, I, I understand Rishi Sunak has said uh, previously that he will publish his tax return, so I would anticipate and expect that he will do that. Um, in terms of uh, Douglas Ross and Anna Sarwar, yes, I, I think they should publish their tax returns as well. Uh, the reason I'm doing this today is I made a commitment to do it. Uh, many of you asked me about it last time I stood here, and I think it does help with transparency. And I think uh, other party leaders in the Scottish Parliament and indeed in Westminster should follow suit. Simon Johnson. Thank you, First Minister. Um, I just wanted to ask you about a couple of polls around the gender issue that we've seen. Um, firstly, there was a YouGov poll conducted last week, which basically said the public, when the, you're looking at where people should be imprisoned, they considered whether that individual is male-bodied or not to be more a more significant factor than whether they're convicted of a sexual offence. So basically, the opposite of what you've been uh, in your response said in response to to James. So a comment on that, please, and whether you consider. Bryson to be a male or female uh, bodied, um, male or female rapist. Uh, secondly, um, yesterday's Sunday Times polling, are you concerned that this whole story is basically doing you some damage personally, the SNP and the independence cause? Thank you. Um, I am always cautious uh, about getting too drawn into opinion polls uh, because that can uh, work both ways. Um, look, I've got nothing more to say than what I've already said about the individual case. As far as I'm concerned, the relevant factor here is that that individual is a rapist and has been dealt with within the prison service accordingly, and that is appropriate. In terms of uh, polls about party personal ratings, you know, polls go up and down. I've been uh, doing this for a long time uh, now, as uh, you all know. I've seen uh, polls go up, I've seen polls go down. What I would say about uh, recent polling... Uh, 
over the weekend is that in what uh, I think you are, so I'll, I'll stress it's your words, not mine, describing as, as not the, the best ever poll for the SNP still puts the SNP uh, significantly ahead of any other party in Scotland, I think would lead, if there was an election for either Westminster or uh, the Scottish Parliament tomorrow, lead to us winning a landslide uh, victory um, and in a Westminster context, uh, lead to both Douglas Ross and Alistair Jack losing their seats. So, um, you know, I think perhaps that gives a, a bit of perspective uh, to the polls that you're asking me about. Right, so you won't say whether Bryson's a man or a woman. And as I say, the polling shows they do think that is an important question, yeah. as James was just saying. I think people are capable of listening to what I'm saying and, and making their own minds up. So uh, I will continue as rationally and as calmly as possible to uh, answer these questions and also to make this principal point that I think is really important here in the trans community, as it would be in any other group, particularly any other minority group in our society, that where individuals or small minorities within that group do wrong, you deal with the individual. You do not use that as a reason to stigmatise or take away rights from the whole group. And I think that is a really important principle in any society and in any democracy. Seth Carell. Uh, thank you, First Minister. Um, in light of the Bryson case, do you think that the current procedures and policies for assessing where a trans prisoner who's committed a sexual offence should go are appropriate? Are they the correct policies? And if so, why are they the correct policies? And if not, why not? The Scottish Prison Service has been dealing with these cases, uh, and you know, Phil Fairley from the Scottish Prison Officers Association said this one morning last week when he was interviewed, have been dealing with these cases now for many years. The very high-profile case that has been reported in recent times has drawn a lot of attention, but the prison service has been dealing safely and effectively and making decisions safely and effectively about transgender prisoners for, for years now on the basis of the arrangements and the risk-based assessment processes that are in place. And I have confidence in those. We clarified uh, last Sunday uh, the situation around uh, those uh, convicted of uh, crimes that involved violence against women, including sexual violence against women, and I think that was the right thing to do. But the last point I would make, of course, is that there is an ongoing review of these policies that has been underway within the Scottish Prison Service for some time and is now uh, reaching its conclusion, and I think therefore it would be premature to say any more uh, ahead of the conclusion of that review. But the difference between the rising case and every other case is that you personally intervened you, through government officials or first minister, through your own ministers, told SPS you were really, really unhappy that Bryson was being held in Gorton Vale and, want, and you made clear in Parliament that you wanted Bryson out of Gorton Vale. So clearly you weren't happy with the procedure that had left Bryson in that um, a women-only facility. So that's why the Bryson case is entirely relevant to what you think mm. about the current policies and the way in which people like that are being managed in the prison estate. I understand the question. I think it's important, though, that in terms of, well, there was two cases, Isla Bryson and the other case, which was a, a potential transfer from one prison to another, that was reported uh, last week. Uh, both of those uh, hadn't reached final decisions. The risk-based uh, assessments were underway. Um, and in Isla Bryson, the decision was a decision by the Scottish Prison Service. Yes, the Scottish Prison Service was aware of my views and, and ministers' views, but it was a decision they reached. And there is absolutely nothing in either of these cases uh, to suggest that the risk-based assessment process uh, wouldn't uh, have reached the 
the, the point that the, the clarification of policy that we made uh, last Sunday would have, have taken you to. So I think it's important to be clear here that in both those cases, uh, these processes, slightly different processes, given that one was a, a newly convicted prisoner and one was a, an existing uh, prisoner within the estate. But nevertheless, these processes were underway and it's those processes I do have confidence in, albeit they have been under review for uh, some time and we will see what the outcome of that review is. Andy, Philip. Hello, First Minister. Um, health provision, particularly women's health provision in uh, the north and rural parts of Scotland, has been under pressure for a, a long time. Um, recently reported how two women gave birth in ambulances at the side of the A96 on their way between Elgin and Aberdeen. And last week we reported that a woman felt she had to go against medical advice that was being given to her at Dr Gray's, um, which was to go to Aberdeen because um, she felt she'd give birth on the way and there was a snowstorm happening. Um, now women there and in Caithness for another area tell us that they're actually putting off planning families, which of course has huge knock-on impacts for places where we're trying to attract people, keep them, um, put down roots. So what do you say to those women and how much more of a priority do you need to put into bringing back up to their full provisional powers in, in health boards across the north? Um, sorry, how much more money needs to be put into Highland and Grampian in particular to get those women's health provision services back up to the speed that they used to be? I don't want to suggest that I'm uh, in any way saying here that money is not important in the context of healthcare, because clearly it is. But in these cases, I, I don't think it is simply a case of, of money. Uh, what I would say to women is we absolutely want women to be able to give birth as close to home as possible. Um, but maternity services require to be safe. And often the issue here, and the reason I'm saying it's not always uh, as simple as, as more money, the issue here is often around recruitment of uh, professionals and clinicians to ensure that we have uh, safe services. Uh, we are working, uh, and I think it was just before Christmas, Hamza Yousaf made uh, an update statement to Parliament about the work that is underway in terms of Dr Gray's in, in Elgin and Rigmore Hospital to ensure that as much uh, maternity care is provided as close to home as possible and that work is underway and obviously the Health Secretary will keep Parliament and the wider public updated but it is important there is there are challenges not just in, in maternity care but in many aspects of health care there are greater challenges in delivering safe and sustainable services in rural and remote parts of the country but those challenges don't mean that we don't have an obligation to ensure that work is done to both invest in and recruit into these services so that they are safe and sustainable for the populations that rely on them. Uh, Lakanya Meanda from the FT. Good afternoon, First Minister. First Minister, I think if, if somebody is following the story about the gender legislation from outside of Scotland, I think they would be quite surprised maybe that the story has become such a big event in Scotland, dominating the political debate dominating your press conference today <laughs> and I think Simon's question there suggested that maybe it's cost you personally politically I mean do you regret the sort of political capital you've had to spend on it so to speak and in, in the near future to start all over again would you do it again and and if so what drives you to continue um, I, I think Parliament was right to pass the legislation that it passed and Parliament passed it by a significant majority, including members of all parties, and you know it did so after very substantial uh, consultation and, and scrutiny. And you know, you, you talk about people in other parts of the world. I think many will be looking into this. If you take a country as close to us as Ireland, Ireland has had legislation similar to this 
in force now for, I don't know how many years, but for quite some time. Many other countries have laws uh, similar to the law passed by the Scottish Parliament, although not yet in force uh, before Christmas, uh, and have had for uh, some time. Last week, I think I said this earlier on, last week Finland passed uh, similar legislation to this. Um, I think as we were uh, passing it in the Scottish Parliament before Christmas, I think Spain passed the first stage of similar legislation. So often in Scotland, uh, we talk about you know being the first to do something. On this, we're nowhere near the first to do it. This is an instance where we have been following many other countries, not uh, setting the pace or taking the lead. Um, you know, I've been doing this uh, job, First Minister, for uh, quite a number of years now, but I've been in politics for uh, a long number of years. And I think every year I am in politics, I've become more convinced you should uh, do the things that you think are right. You should be driven by what you think is right. Every politician has to uh, get public support to be elected and to take forward legislation. But what drives me on this issue, um, going back to a question I was asked earlier on, is not ideology or it's it's about making life easier for a very, very small group in our society uh, that find life quite hard a lot of the time right now. And I think trying to make life easier for people is one of the things politicians should always seek to do. Now, it's important that we do that without impinging on the rights of other groups. And I believe the legislation passed in Parliament before Christmas uh, struck the right balance. Obviously, it's not in force yet because of uh, the, the reasons we we are aware of. But I believe Parliament was right uh, to pass the legislation that it did. Mark McLaughlin. Good afternoon. Um, the first question is, do you agree with Jenny Gilruth that 10%, uh, the, the, the teacher's 10% pay demand is a reasonable request, that she said on debate night? Secondly, on, on the gender reform, um, last week you were asked if Isla Bryson was a man or a woman, and you said you do not have enough information to validate that claim. Now, under GRR, how would you validate that claim under the existing bill there's a diagnosis of gender dysphoria which is being removed so how do you validate somebody's um, legal sex under GRR and you've also created this new category of rapist but GRR didn't prevent all rapists from getting a gender recognition certificate it was only those subject to a sexual offences prevention order so it was only the most serious rapists so under GRR Isla Bryson could have quite easily got a gender recognition certificate which would have made it a criminal offence for people to disclose her previous gender. The, the legislation and the specific amendments that were uh put into the legislation around the ability to effectively pause a process for uh, a gender recognition certificate on the basis of uh, the police having a sexual offences uh, order um, actually uh, are a strengthening of the the law around that if, if that law comes into to force. There is no such procedure in the current law for uh, somebody getting a gender recognition certificate. Uh, my comments about her, uh, the, the person being a rapist is in context of what should happen to them within the prison service. This is a debate about whether this individual uh, should be in a, a male or a female prison. And in my view, what matters uh, there is the 
the nature of the crime and the degree of risk that on the basis of an assessment it is considered that the individual poses and that is the position has been the position previously and is the position now and that is in my view the right one. I haven't seen the uh, precise uh, comments, but if Jenny Gilruth is saying um, that we wish we could give 10% pay rises to teachers and that it's not unreasonable for uh, somebody to want that magnitude of a pay rise, then yes, uh, but that's not affordable within the reality of the financial situation we are in. You know, the NHS uh, Agenda for Change workforce haven't been given a, offered a 10% pay rise this year. Um, and therefore we need to, we, I have great sympathy for workers generally and for public sector workers given the level of inflation. But as First Minister, we have to reach agreements that are affordable within the resources we've got. And that's what we're seeking to do uh, with teachers. Uh, Chris Green. Thank you, First Minister. Um, could I ask what you make of the return, the sort of unapologetic return of Liz Truss to the political arena at the weekend? And uh, is there perhaps an element of attention seeking? <laughs> I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> um, I, th I think there may have been just a tad uh, of it. Um, I, I've, I've got a, a terrible confession to make. Um, I didn't wade my way through the entirety of our, was it 4,000 word uh, article in the, the Sunday Telegraph uh, yesterday. But, you know, I, th I think people across uh, the UK in many respects, in their, their mortgages and the cost of living generally are still paying the price of the disastrous decisions Liz Truss took in her short tenure as Prime Minister. So I suspect they would probably have welcomed a, a longer period of uh, silence from her, but um, I'll leave it to her to, to justify her 4,000 words. Lewis Mackenzie. Thank you very much, First Minister. Um, you, you'd said to Glenn earlier that you weren't in favour of anyone in the SNP standing down um, over the their, their views on sort of gender self ID. Um, but I think the key question is: I mean, are, are you happy for opponents of that bill to stand again? I mean, one example would be Joanna Cherry. Would you welcome her if she decided to stand again as an MP for the SNP? I don't think anybody should be prevented from standing because they disagree with party policy on one particular uh, issue. Um, and I'm not talking about this issue in, 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 in specific terms, but generally uh, we, all political parties, have an expectation uh, that I don't think there's anybody in elected office, and, and I would include myself in this, that would say we agreed with 100% of the policy positions of our party. Um, but there's a general expectation when you stand under your party's banner, you accept the, the platform that you are standing on. But equally, there is also an understanding and a recognition and an acceptance that there will be issues uh, on which some people take a different view and vote accordingly. And I think parties uh, always have been and always should be uh, willing to deal with that. Tom Gordon. Uh, thank you, uh, First Minister. Um, I think you just referred to Ireland Bryson using the word her. Does that mean you do, in fact, think Don't she is a woman? anything into I, I am trying to rationally. Individual, Look, you started I, saying her. What I'm trying to do is address the issues rather than take it into the kind of, uh, you know, headline generating. I'm trying to rationally deal with the issues that arise here, um, and that's what I'll continue to but, try to do. Why did you say that? 
I, you, I, I can't remember. I'll it take your word for it. It sounds well, like fine. a Freudian Look, slip. I'm, I'm trying not Isla to. Bryson as a woman, is that I'm, not the case? But, but what I'm saying is, Isla Bryson calls herself a woman. But what I'm trying to say is, in the context of the prison service, that is not the relevant factor here. The relevant factor is the crime that uh, the individual was committed, uh, has committed, and has been convicted of. But we've all been asking you, and you've been running away from the uh, the question. We have been asking you for days. Do you regard Isla Bryson as? As a she woman. Herself as a woman. I regard uh, the individual as a rapist. And in the context. To say whether the, the context of the prison service, what matters is that uh, the individual was convicted of rape. And that is what we're talking about here. And that's what I will continue to, to focus on. On a second issue, you talked about the benefits of financial transparency from political leaders in regards to your tax returns. When did you first know your husband had loaned the SNP £107,000? My husband is an individual and he will uh, take decisions about what he does with resources that belong to him uh, in line with that. And uh, I'm standing here as First Minister and that is what I'll answer for. You also talked about internal management of the SNP earlier. So you do talk about SNP matters at these events. When did you first know he'd given that money to the party? I can't recall exactly when I first knew that, but what he does with his uh, resources is a matter for him. And it was wholly his money, any of it yours? It, it, the resources that he lent the party to, uh, to the party were resources that belonged to him. Only to him, yeah? They were his resources. None of it was yes, yours, no? his resources. Okay. Justin Bowie from The Courier. Good afternoon, First Minister. You may be aware that uh, Dundee's SNP council leader, John Alexander, put out a stark warning yesterday about the state of local government, warning that there will need to be obviously rises in council tax and cuts as well. I was wondering if you'd seen his warning, um, what you made of what he'd written, and um, do you think there's any areas in particular that council leaders like him should be looking at cutting, just to balance the books? Well, council budgets... The overall local government settlement will go up by £570 million next year. Now, we live in a time of high inflation. That means that these decisions are difficult for local authorities. Uh, But I would expect all local authorities to take decisions that are in the uh, interests overall, balanced decisions that are in the interests of the local communities. John Alexander is a first-class leader of Dundee City Council, and I know that council will take its budget decisions carefully and in the interests of the people they represent. Tom Eden from the Daily Mail. Thank you, First Minister, and thank you for publishing your tax returns. In that sort of spirit of transparency, can you commit to publishing the review that's being carried out into uh, why Isla Bryson was housed in a female-only prison um, that I believe the Scottish Government and the SPS now have, uh, publishing it in full? Um, and just sort of following on from the theme of Tom's question um, about Isla Bryson, once they've served their sentence in prison, how should they be treated? Should it be as a man or a woman once they're free? They should be treated in line with any sex offenders. Uh, The MAPA arrangements, the well-established arrangements for monitoring sex offenders uh, remain in place. And sorry, I didn't catch your first question. Are the review into the Scottish prisons, the decision to uh, house Isla Bryson in a female prison to start with? Uh, Will you commit to publishing that in full? Uh, That is a a review that the Chief Executive of the Scottish Prison Service uh, initiated. I understand that was reporting uh, to her uh, at the end of last week, and it will be up to the Scottish Prison Service what they choose to publish. I would expect that they will uh, make public uh, any findings of that review. The other review, the broader review into the policy generally, yes, um, obviously, uh, the key findings of that will be published in due course. Uh, Louise Wilson from Holyrood. Thanks, First Minister. Um, Just very briefly, um, 
Is the intention still for the Scottish government to mount a legal challenge to the Section 35 order? Um, and when can we expect that announcement? Um, and on a slightly different issue, um, the w- another Scottish Parliament committee last week um, came out against the National Care Service bill. Um, so what is the government doing about that? Are you going to pause it? Do you need to go back to the drawing board about those plans? Um, on the first point, I think I answered this uh, to a previous questioner. Our position hasn't changed on challenging uh, the Section 35 order. Um, and we'll set out uh, the uh, steps we intend to take on that in due course. On the National Care Service Bill, there's a, a number of parliamentary committees uh, taking evidence on that bill. Um, we haven't uh, yet had the overall uh, publication of the, the reports on that. We'll take stock uh, when we do. The National Care Service is an important reform uh, to make sure that we have uh, consistent uh, standards and quality of social care across the country and indeed uh, consistent terms and conditions of those who work in social care. So it's a, a reform we we are committed to, but obviously we'll take uh, careful account of any of uh, any points that any committee makes as part of their scrutiny of the bill. Right, I've concluded my uh, list of questions. I am assuming I haven't missed anybody out inadvertently. Thank you all very much. And you can watch the video recording of that press briefing on ScottGov's website. Meantime, we'll be back on Friday with our regular podcast episode, which this week is an episode of The TNT Show. Host John Drummond speaks to Professor Shona Douglas-Scott about the Constitution. Constitution.